So if you're a guest today, we've been in a sermon series entitled Family Matters, Love Matters, uh, really focusing on the family, and in particular on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. There's a lot of descriptions about love that are given there, and so we're looking at what does it mean to have kindness in the family, or patience, truth, and honesty, to be generous in the family, and so on, keep no record of wrongs. And last Sunday, we started on verse 7, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we talked about bears, and we talked about believes. And today, we're going to talk about the hopes and the endures. So before we get into that proper, three caveats. Caveat number one, uh, uh, we understand that there are biblical grounds for divorce. They are adultery, abuse, and abandonment. And so uh, if, uh, if someone has that in their past, divorce, remarriage, uh, don't hear this series, this message in particular, as uh, con- condemning that or, or guilting that. That's not our purpose at all. In fact, you know, a lot of people, I think, hang in there, and it's a testament to their faith and their courage and their strength that they hang in there as long as, as they do. So please don't hear this through that filter. That's not the case at all. There's no subcontext context here, no judgment. Number two is the goal of this message in the sermon series as a whole is to reinforce and strengthen the marriages that we have. And we're not just a strictly focused on marriage, but the marriages that we have, the families that we have, to encourage them, strengthen them, anchor them. We want them to be lasting families and loves. So there's that. And then the third and final caveat is for those who are single. The single state is fine with God. It's not a lesser spiritual state. Uh, So again, we're not just narrowly focused on marriage here. Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul was single. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, I wish everybody was single. And the reason being, he says, you you single folks, though, need to understand that that's an opportunity to lean into kingdom work and kingdom service in a way that's less distracted and more focused than people that who are married, frankly. So make sure we're using that single time to lean into kingdom work. But also, it's fine to be a single who's hopefully looking forward to being married someday as well. And again, we want to make that future marriage as strong as possible. So with those caveats in mind, I want to say two things today about lasting love that leads to lasting families. Number one, and this is again from the second half of verse seven, lasting love hopes, hopes, love hopes all things. The word in the original language is elpizo. It means to look forward to something with a sense of confidence about it coming to pass. So it, Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not believing what you know ain't so. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. And in this context, it's love hopes in the Corinthian church that the people around them in the church would be able to change and change for the better. And and we're applying this to our family so our family members can change and continue to get better. It's an optimistic view of the future. It's not natural optimism or blind optimism. It's recognizing that if if there is a member in the family who is a Christian, then the X factor who is God is in that family. The Holy Spirit is working in that family. And so positive change is always possible. John MacArthur writes, even when belief in a loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. 
As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. God would not take Israel's failure as final. Jesus would not take Peter's failure as final. Paul would not take the Corinthians' failure as final. There are more than enough promises in the Bible to make love hopeful. The parents of backslidden children, the spouse of an unbelieving marriage partner, the church that has disciplined members who do not repent, all hope and love that the child, the spouse, or the erring brother or sister will be saved or restored. Love refuses to take failure as final. The rope of love's hope has no end. As long as there's life, love does not lose hope. And when our hope becomes weak, we know our love has become weak. If I had an ice cube right here on this communion table and this room was cold, say 24 degrees, you could see your breath. Some of you think it's that cold right now, but you're always cold. And then so the ice cube is there and we raise the temperature here from 24 to 25 degrees. Is the ice going to melt? No, it's not. 25 to 26, is it going to melt? No, it's not. In fact, what temperature do you have to get to for that ice to start melting? No, it's 32 it's interesting, the freezing point is also the melting point. It's 32 degrees. I don't understand it, but look it up. I'm right about that. So you go from 31 to 32, we say, oh, all of a sudden, the, the state of that liquid is changing. It's melting just because of that one degree. But it wasn't that one degree. It's all the energy and the degrees and the heat that were happening leading up to that. It's a cumulative effect. And likewise, we're hoping that someone will change or the dynamic will change. So something happens at some point where that change is triggered and we say, oh, it happened all of a sudden. But it wasn't really all of a sudden. It was the cumulative effect of God and circumstances and family and teaching and the Holy Spirit. And then the change happens. Always possible. We're optimistic about that. Leela Miller has edited a book entitled Impossible Marriages Redeemed. And she tells about dozens of marriages, true stories, that seemed like they were impossible, but as the title says, wound up being redeemed because someone refused to lose hope. Let me give you one example. We started dating at 16, married at 24, high school sweethearts. The first year was hell. We both had childhood abuse issues. I hid my pain and overachieving. My husband dealt with his pain by drinking. I had three children in three and a half years and an old-fashioned husband who thought that parenting was for the mom only. I didn't have the support I needed. My parents had passed away, but I pushed on. My husband's drinking continued every night after work. He often missed dinner. He came home at midnight or later. I was a nervous wreck throughout our marriage. I explored divorce, praying God would show me his will. Well, he always showed me to work on myself, to find my significance in him, and to act lovingly toward my husband despite my feelings. And he showed me to pray. I began counseling. I read through a ton of Christian self-help books, which slowly unraveled the dysfunction. I began attending Al-Anon as I healed from my own issues and learned to act, not react, along with other relationship tools, things began to improve. And slowly but surely, things have come around, and we are happy now in our 34th year of marriage. That is one story of 50 in this book of impossible marriages. There are 50 more stories in our congregation and 50 more known to our congregation. Don't lose hope. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read about Manasseh, who was probably the worst king of Judah. And that's saying a lot of those 22 kings. There was a lot of bad ones. But we read how Manasseh led his people, those in Judah, the people in his kingdom, in immorality, in idolatry, in the worship of Molech, in child sacrifice. He, he sacrificed his own infant son to Molech, and he got the people to do the same thing. In fact, the Bible says that under Manasseh, the people in Judah became worse, worse morally violent, more vile than the pagan nations that they had chased out of the land when they conquered the promised land. And so God allowed the Assyrians to invade, to capture Manasseh, to lead him off into captivity with a hook in his nose. And he winds up in a dungeon in Assyria. And in that dungeon... Something happened to Manasseh. He had a change of heart. He had a come to Jesus moment before Jesus had ever come. And he repented and prayed to God in repentance. And God being God forgave him. None of us would have forgiven him, but God forgave him. And allowed him to return to Judah where he changed his life and began trying to undo all the evil that he had done. I don't know who we're married to. I don't know who our parents are or what's happened with our children, but I doubt they were as bad as Manasseh. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope on yourself either. I mean, we may have been that state. We've been three steps forward, four steps back. We've fallen off the wagon. But there is always hope for us. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And his primary purpose of indwelling us is change. To give us the power of transformation and change. Paul writes Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or we could give up and get a divorce. And get a divorce and just wipe the slate clean start over, somebody knew. All the problems go away, right? Not so much. In our life group, a couple of months ago, we were talking about divorce and remarriage. Almost everyone in my life group is divorced and remarried. We had a a candid conversation, and we can do that. We love each other in, in that group. And afterwards, Avon Putterer, a member of our congregation, sent me an email about her experience with divorce and remarriage. Uh, I'd never read that perspective before. I thought it was very raw and very helpful. I asked her if I could share it. She said, yes, here it is. While David and I love each other and our family dearly, we both hate that we ended up with divorce-broken families. Doing the work to keep a family whole and intact is messy and hard. But if you think that's hard, try parenting alone or as a blended family. Your life will never be the same, and there will be consequences for the rest of your life and the generations to follow. Your kids' birthdays and special occasions at school will be tense at best for everyone. You lose control over when you have or get to see your kids. If you remarry and are a blended family, then your kids must take direction and correction from someone who isn't their biological mom or dad. That correction is not as well received because the child misses their natural parent and is angry that the other person is telling them what to do. More stress on the kids and on the new marriage. If one thinks their new life and family will be easier, they are wrong. It's harder. 
Fast forward a few years to graduations, marriages, grandchildren. The kids are now adults, and they see what's going on. Stress levels increase. Most of their special life events aren't as they should have been. I can say that at every life event or holiday, there has been pain, especially for the kids. Eventually, the grandkids start asking questions. Parents sometimes don't know their grandkids. Great-grandparents might never meet their great-grandchildren. Sometimes divorce is a necessary evil. But it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It comes at a high cost, higher than most imagine. My prayer is that struggling families will put down their iPhones, iPads, smartwatches, disconnect from expectations set by social media, give that attention to your marriage and family, protect and keep it together. Give that time to your relationships in the church to help you grow as a disciple of Christ. And for those blended families who are getting a dose of reality, make the choice to hang in there and stay plugged into the church. God can take the messiest family situations and turn them into something beautiful. But it takes time and attention and intention. Mary Oliver says attention is the beginning of devotion. Thank you, Avon, for sharing that. Dr. Chris Ballas says, The goal of adulthood is to let go of the other possible existences and to make the best of this one. Forget about the fantasies. Oh, if I was single. Oh, if I was married to him or if I was married to her, if I was divorced. This is the reality that we have, not the alternate reality. Make the best of this one. Scott Peck writes, when we avoid the legitimate suffering that results from dealing with problems, we also avoid the growth that problems demand from us. Don't tap out. That is cheating ourselves of the growth that comes through working through problems. Romans 8.38, Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, the powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ten problems that God did not allow to come between him and his family. He worked through at great personal cost. Don't lose hope. Love hopes all things. Number two, lasting love endures. Love endures all things. word here is hypomeno. It means to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition, to stand one's ground, to hold out, and to endure, to remain when others have departed. I think it might help if we realize going in that family and marriage is hard. It's hard. Now, I know those, there are those for whom it is not hard, who married their best friend. I know I sometimes make fun of them. I shouldn't. If that's you, you and family comes easy and marriage comes easy, that's great. That's a platform from which you can springboard and bless so many other people and draw them into that. But there are a lot of folks for whom marriage is hard. And God's greatest good for us is not our fleeting personal happiness. It is holiness. And if we focus on fidelity and faithfulness and holiness, we get happiness as a side benefit. Mark Moore, the author of Core 52, writes, Let me share my experience as a pastor. 100% of the time when people say, God wants me happy, they are about to make a tragic mistake, and usually in their marriage. 
Marriages start out with passionate love. It's the days of wine and roses. It's, it's all blue skies and rainbows. And the hormones are raging. And that lasts, on average, about 18 months. And then things get back to normal. And in the families that last, the passionate love must be replaced by companion love. Companion love is still love, but it's tougher. It's stronger. It wipes the snotty nose. It changes the diaper. It does the dishes. It compromises, and it works through problems and endures. The fact that we have a 1 Corinthians 13 that says, look, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is generous is a testimony that there's a flip side to that, that we're often dealing with people who are going to try our patience, people who are stingy, people who are mean, for whom if we kept a record of wrongs, we'd never have time for anything but payback. Alan Bott, in his book, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, writes this. If we get our marital advice from Netflix, Nashville, Disney, or just about anywhere else in our society, we'll spend our single years in hot pursuit of Mr. and Mrs. Wright. We'll operate on the founding romantic idea upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based the last 250 years that a perfect being exists who can meet all of our needs and satisfy our every yearning, the yin to our yang. Truth is, we'll discover this soulmate on the same day we spot the Loch Ness Monster. While riding on a unicorn a few strides behind Sasquatch, they all belong to the same mythology. The only candidates available for matrimony are sinners. And when we say, I do, we are bound in a one flesh union to a deeply flawed person. And they to us. They'll frustrate us, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice or hardly trying, will do the same to them. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. Makes you want to run out and get married, doesn't it? A successful marriage, therefore, will be one in which God is hard at work on two egocentric sinners to help them fail at achieving their own wills that they might learn to serve the needs of another. Russell Conwell was the founder of Temple University, and for 12 years, starting in 1912, he toured the world giving basically one talk. One talk. You know what that talk was? Anybody know? It's called Acres of Diamonds. And in this talk, it was about Ali Hafed, who lived in Persia. And he had a farm and a nice family. And one night, a Buddhist priest came and visited him and told him about diamonds. And said, you know, if you had one diamond the size of a thumbnail, you could buy this county. So if you had a mine of diamonds, you could set your children up on thrones. And so all, all that night, Hafed was thinking about diamonds. He couldn't sleep. In the morning, he sold his farm. And he, he put his family in the care of a trusted friend, he took that money and went off in search of diamonds. And he searched through Persia, and he searched through Palestine, and he searched through Europe. And after all of these months and years, found himself impoverished and in rags, standing on the bay in Barcelona, Spain, and in despair, he threw himself into that bay, never to rise again. Meanwhile, the guy who bought his farm back in Persia 
led his camel out to the stream on that property. And as his camel was drinking from the stream, nudged a stone out from the white sands. And the new owner bent down and picked up that stone. He noticed how it reflected the light. So he took it inside and put it up on his mantle. That very night, the same Buddhist priest came to visit. He immediately saw that stone and he said, a diamond. He said, has Ali Hafed returned with diamonds? And the new owner said, no, and that's not a diamond. It's a pebble I found in the stream out back. And he said, I know a diamond when I see one. And they rushed out. They began digging in those sands and unearthed more diamonds, bigger and more valuable than that first one. And that's the story of the founding of the Golconda Mine, the, one of the greatest diamond mines ever discovered in human history. And the lesson was, if Ali Hafed had simply stayed home, and dug under his own stream or his own basement or in his own fields, he would have found acres of diamonds and lived a rich and happy man. Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Or as the CEV, be faithful to your wife, just as you take water from your own well. Be happy with the wife you married when you were young. Stay home and work that home. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it is not love that sustains our marriages. It is marriage that sustains our love. Well, that means there has to be that structure. And by the way, living together is not marriage. It's not the same. It's not going to produce the same result. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you've been married five times, but the man you're now living with is not your husband. Those two are not equivalent. There has to be something public, a commitment that solemnizes that union before God. Chad Bird writes, there'll come a time, maybe many times, when if your spouse were simply our boyfriend or a girlfriend or live-in lover, we'd pack our bags and march off in search of someone new and supposedly better. But we can't do that so easily when we're married. And if we have children, we're even more locked into the union. We find out that marriage is bigger than our egos and stronger than our weaknesses and more stable than our shifting moods and seasons of unhappiness. Often we're also pleasantly surprised that find, to find that because we can't just hit the road at the first hint of problems, we end up staying and working through them. We hear each other out. We sacrifice our own desires. We compromise, forgive, and learn that real love always entails bearing a cross. All marriages are cruciform in shape. We step into the vocations of husband and wife. We don't create them or redefine them according to our whims and preferences. And thank God we don't. We'd make a defective product of it. All our efforts to redefine marriage are as vain as redefining the sun of the mountains or the water. They are what they are just as marriage is what it is, a fundamental created reality that cannot be altered. When we marry, we step inside an ancient divine structure that's bigger, older, and more stable than our love or feelings. In the book and the movie, The Notebook, you've got the first part of the movie, you've got Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, and it's wine and roses and romance. They fall in love. So you've got all that. And then the second part, you transition to the couple that's been together for decades. They're old and wrinkled like we all wind up. 
And they're nearing their end, and the, the final scene is the wife is in a hospital bed, and her husband is by her side, and he crawls at one point into the bed with her. And then the nurse comes in later and finds that they have both passed away with their hands clasped. And it's a moving scene because we resonate with that. That's what we all want. We want that companion for life that we've lived life with and and pushed through problems, not alone, but with that loving companion. But there's a reason why in the movie they just show the beginning and they show the end. Because all that stuff in the middle is boring. It's boring. It's not the stuff of movies. The faithfulness, the fidelity, the endurance, the hope. Right? That, that's not the stuff of Hollywood, but that's the stuff of real life. And it's the only way to get to that happy ending that we all want. As the Bible says of Joseph, he passed the test and lived the dream. Love hopes and endures all things. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, everybody in here wants that happy ending. We want that love, Lord, that love that endures. And and we know that with you, with you in the equation, we can do it. We're not just grinding it out. It's not just rise and grind, Lord, that that we're, we're doing this with the help and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this morning a blessing on every person, family, marriage that is here today or marriage that is that is to come. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.